It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here to celebrate his 500th episode with a look at the new Secure Boot. You can expect Windows 10 computers to be more locked down than ever. How does that work? He'll also talk about the latest security news, including a new entry on the Google Do Not Trust list. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Twit's annual audience survey, and we want to hear from you. Please visit twit.tv slash survey and let us know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and your anonymous feedback will help us make Twit even better. We thank you so much for your continued support. Twit.tv slash survey. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 500, recorded Tuesday, March 24th, 2015. Windows Secure Boot. Security Now is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. Get five bucks off your first purchase by entering the code SECURITYNOW, one word, when you check out. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security online. And we couldn't do it without this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Leo, episode 500. Oh, my goodness. Now, some people, uh, notably Simon Zarafa, who's tweeted several times, saying, well, what, if, what, what about 512? You know, shouldn't oh, that you be binary like bigots. a thing? And it's like, well, okay, yeah, that's going to be good in 18 weeks. But right now, episode 500. Well, so. well, you know what it does? It points up the fact that this is really just an odometer number. There's not really... Much, I mean, if, when you say we've been doing this show for ten years, now that's meaningful to me, right? Right, and that's well, it, up exactly very soon. because 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 you have some of your daily shows that are in the triple or yeah. what, in, in the four four digits Gizwiz already. Is, yeah, so. Grizzlies is in thousands, but yeah, but that's... but our tenth anniversary. Do you know? Have you have we figured out when that is? Because that's in in six months or so, I think. I think it, it was shorter after Twit. I think we started Security Now. Mm, like in the late summer. Okay. So, so yeah, soon. maybe about six months. Yeah. Yeah, because our twit, we're April 19th, will be our uh, 10th yep. anniversary twit. That's going to be a fun event. Nice. We've got all the original uh, guys on the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. So that's a special This Week in Tech on April 19th. So this week, I, I, was, I was sort of moved to this topic because of some news that came out of... Uh, Microsoft's WinHEC, uh, the hardware engineering conference in Shenzhen, China, about four days ago. And a slide that was shown talking about the UEFI secure boot and TPM details caught a lot of people's attention because under UEFI secure boot, in order to get the Windows 10 logo which is, you know, the, the prized what everyone wants to have on their laptops so that they can say, you know, we're an official Windows 10 logo laptop or desktop or whatever. Um, you must ship the machine with secure boot enabled. Yeah. You must have UEFI version 2.31 
or later, which is and two three one is when secure boot essentially happened. So it sort of appeared in two point two, but three one is now is like the the they, the standard. Then they said um, for Windows ten mobile must not allow secure boot to be turned off on the retail device. Well, that's not a biggie. That's sort of like the iPhone. You don't want the iPhone's boot integrity to be, you can't turn, you're not supposed to be able to turn that off. You know, it's an appliance. So the Win 10 Mobile is an appliance in that sense. But what what generated a ton of news stories when people saw this is that for Win 10 Desktop for the first time, they said it's the OEM's option whether to allow the end user to turn off secure boot. Now, this is a, if this stands, and this is subject to change by the time it finally happens, late, um, you know, this summer, presumably. But this is a policy change from Win 8, because Win 8 also used UEFI secure boot, had to ship with it enabled. However, in order to get the logo certification for Win 8, the OEM had to allow the end user to turn it off and had to allow them to add their own security certificates to the the UEFI secure boot database. So, so this sort of, I mean, this is sort of always been Microsoft's approach is, for example, in XP, they added a firewall. And this was still when the market was selling third-party firewalls, but oh, not to worry, it's off by default. And sure enough, it really didn't affect anyone because it was off by default. But then, of course, famously with Service Pack 2, they turned it on. And so Microsoft sort of creeps along like this. Anyway, so the the issue is um, that if you were to purchase a machine which which the OEM had removed the opportunity to disable secure boot in the BIOS, then that's a Windows appliance. You can't put Linux on it. You can't yeah. do anything else with you it, don't that, own you it may, really. that you it's may not, want to. It's not yours. Well, it's sort of more like a big flat phone yeah. because, you know, in that sense. So anyway, th- this stirred up a bunch of, of commotion, and I thought this is a perfect opportunity for us on Security Now to look at the technology of the UEFI, what's that about? What's Secure Boot? What, how, how, how does Windows interact with it? And, and down at the technical level with certificates and hashes and all that, how does that all work? So that's the topic for the show today, Windows Secure Boot. Excellent. Uh, and there was a little bit of news, uh, a really a perfect teachable moment for an iPhone, iPad, four-digit PIN hack. Uh, I just loved the cleverness of this, so we'll talk about that. Another, an even worse certificate was found in the wild than we talked about last week. Um, and I've heard you now, both on MacBreak Weekly and on Twit, talk about the Pwn to Own contest, uh, which I thought was just amazing because, you know, that kid who cracked all the browsers probably could n- name his salary. Actually, yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't need a salary yeah. given the price. $255,000 he won. Yeah, yeah. So we have a great podcast today. Excellent. I'm excited. I hope you are too since it is, after all, 
our 500th, and Lisa and I uh, wish you a very happy 500th, and uh, our deepest prayer that you will do another 500 for us. It's going great for me. I, I ought to also mention, just because we won't be talking uh, again until after, uh, I turn 60 in two days. Happy birthday. So That's a big yep. one. I hope you're doing something fun. That well, I've got all kinds of plans. So <laughs> my, That's a huge because, birthday. Know, like, wow. Yeah. And w- w- I guess what I like about it is that it was it was as I was approaching my 5-0 10 years ago that um I I ha- I just published Spinrite 6. It was cruising along uh, and I got I got sort of as I was approaching 50, I got focused on health. And so that's when I really began my dive into learning about supplements and longevity and health and inflammation and got into the whole issue of heart disease and cholesterol and, of course, famously vitamin D and then later the whole ketosis thing and all that. And for me, as I turn 60, what's what's exciting for me is that I can literally, I I can truly say that I feel 10 years younger today than I did 10 years ago. Like, I mean, I just, I've never felt better in my life. We we saw that I got a a cold a couple of weeks ago, so (laughs) I'm not impervious, but I just, you know, nothing hurts. I wake up feeling fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do some scans on the day after my birthday. I, I like to get my carotid artery ultrasound scanned. and I did remove a little bit of plaque about five years ago uh, that was initially there when I began this quest for health. And that's all gone now. I reversed that. And wow, uh, right. anyway, I'm just having a great time. So 6-0. And it does feel like a milestone. And oh, I'm yeah. Just, I'm Glad that everything's going so well. Or as and, Web forty three eighty four says, it's only thirty two in hex. <laughs> That's Just right. Remember that. That's right. Although I don't want to know what it is in binary. No. I'm sorry. He's got it wrong. It's four C. Or Charlie. For Charlie. <laughs> Um, well, you are well shaved. I might add that for your uh, for your anniversary show, and we can thank Harry's for that. I have my Harry's kit right here. Harry's uh, early on, uh, they're I think they're two years old, so they're just kids. When they started, they did a little investigation. What they wanted to do was offer a better shaving experience, something we do every single day. And uh, as uh, well, I almost said as men, but as humans, I guess. And uh, many of us do every single day. And it's often something we don't look forward to. But Harry's has changed all that for so many of us by giving us a fun, great shave at a very affordable price. When they decided to start Harry's, they, that was the, the, the challenge, was how do, we make, how do we make a better blade for less money? And uh, the founders actually found out that the best blades in the world are made by two factories, both in Germany. So they bought one of them. You know, when you're when you're making the blades, you can specify how well made they are. So they engineer their blades for both sharpness and performance, and then they ship them for free right to your door, and that cuts out a lot of money. They're about half the cost of those high-priced blades at the drugstore. 
that's a good a good price. Now, start with the Harry's kit. Uh, I have in front of me the Truman kit, which I really like. I think that's the one you use, uh, Steve. I'm um, I'm a Winston fellow myself. But yep, the Truman. I'm a Truman. You right. liked? We sent you a Winston. I think you ordered a, a Truman later. This is oh, I'm sorry. This Correct. is a Winston. Correct. Now, look at that. Correct. That's beautiful. This is the <laughs> beautiful. See, don't you wish you had a Winston? The the Winston is a is a, a twenty five dollars set. Which is actually a great deal. Uh, it has a metal handle. You can get it engraved if you wish. Um, the Truman is $15. I'm going to tell you save how much you can save on that. And that comes in four different colors. And I think you said you liked it because it has a flat side. So you know yeah, which I, side I, is up. It, it, it's a plastic handle. And I guess I kind of like the warmth of the plastic. Yeah, this is more cold than sort when of, you pick it up. Yeah, than the coldness of, of, yeah. of the metal. But, yeah. but also it does have... Some, it's not cylindrical, so I I can feel the orientation right. of it in in my hand, which I like. Good deal too, because for fifteen dollars with the Truman, you not only get the blade, you get uh, they're a handle, but you get three blades. I love how Harry's packages their blades too. Really, these are these are great. Three blades. Uh, you get the travel cover, which uh, they don't ever talk about, but I think is fantastic. I use this all the time. You put your blade in there; it, it, it's got ventilation, so it can dry out if it's if you did it right after you shaved. And but it also keeps you from cutting yourself if you reach into your your dop kit, your travel kit, to get it, and uh, it's protected. Um, they also include your choice, either the cream or the foaming shave gel. A lot of people. I've been using the gel with the other other razor systems, and so they are familiar with that. But you and I both really like the cream, and you know, yeah. I, I would suggest trying both. You pick one for your kit, but can you believe that a full? This is not like some sample tube. The full tube of of gel or cream, a, a handle, three blades for fifteen dollars. That is an amazing price. And oh, by the way. You can take $5 off it if you go to harrys.com and enter the code security now at checkout. So you're saving, you're, that's $10. That is a good deal. That's at harrys.com slash, actually there's no slash, just harrys.com. And do browse around though, read up on the various things. They have a great aftershave lotion, which we uh, we love, that moisturizes and makes you feel good. It makes shaving a pleasure. And I have to say, I, I am a fan of Harry's. Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Get $5 off your first purchase. Enter the offer code uh, SECURITYNOW, all one word. And uh, and then you'll be signing up. Or you don't have to, but I would suggest signing up for the monthly or bi-monthly deliveries because that way you'll get new blades all the time. And having a new blade is great. It just reminds me. I, I change my blades on Mondays. And just having the new blades reminds me it's time to change the blade. And that, that helps. That's you get a good system. Yeah, have a day that you do it, right? Yeah. I figure Monday, beginning of the week, I'm gonna change. My, I'm gonna start start off start off the week with a yeah. with a super sharp set of blades. Now, if you're married and your wife uses your blade, and she will if she discovers the Harrys, yeah, my suggestion get two handles. We actually got monogrammed handles. One says Leo, one says yeah. <laughs> I swear to God, because the problem is, if she uses it, then I don't. My thing is off. This, yeah. If I change it every Monday, I know it's been used, you know, seven times, and that's it. Yep. And she uses it. Could be. It could be more, and then I uh, don't know. Get two, monogrammed. My tip to Harry's you. and Harriets. Harriets. If they don't start a Harriet soon, I'm just gonna plot. Okay. So, so security news. Security news. Uh, you want to click the second link in the 
first page of the show notes. Okay. Uh, Phonefunshop.co.uk, and there's some uh, trailer stuff. This is a a really interesting hack for the iPhone and iPads, which worked through version 8.1, but inevitably was going to be foreclosed on as soon as Apple realized what was going on. But the fact is, this was hardware. A hardware box costs about 120 pounds, which which until just November, which is when they went to 8.1.1, was able to, cr- to crack four-digit pins. Uh, if you had if you had your iPhone protected by a four digit pin code, now we've talked about how hard Apple worked to to make that impossible. Specifically, the the famous erase all data after ten attempts lockout. The idea being that you just can't guess four digit pins day and night yeah. because af- after. 10 mistakes it does a it basically remember it throws the keys away it doesn't actually have to wipe the data because the 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 phone is encrypted and all it needs to do is wipe the 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 key which is required to be in line in the hardware that performs the on the fly encryption and decryption as data goes in and out of memory so get a load of this what this hardware does you have to Open the phone up physically, you know, and in fact, there's a picture of it in use on the link above at that, that, that techworm.net uh, link that shows the, the screen popped open. I mean, the, the, the phone guts exposed, which has to happen. Um, then you stick some probes inside. Oh, wow. Now, what this does is, get this, Leo, it tries 0000. zero, zero, zero determines instantly whether it worked or didn't. And if it didn't, it does an instant power cut to the phone. To prevent the deletion. Yet to prevent the counting. Ah. So, So Apple made a little mistake. And this is why this is such a perfect example of, you know, like real world security. Apple's programmers said, okay, so... If it's if they don't enter the pin code correctly, and we and erase data after ten attempts is enabled, then we increment a counter which we store in non-volatile memory, so that we're continuing to increment it until they enter it correctly. In which case, we zero the counter. What these guys did was realize they could they could break power, disconnect the battery so fast after a guest failure that the phone was in the process of recording the guests wow. but wasn't able to complete that update so just a brilliant hack I, I just love this because this is this is the kind of way security breaches occur the, you know where something looks absolutely solid until somebody really motivated looks at the same code everybody else has been looking at and says wait a minute what if we chop the power right here and then reboot the phone and then try the next pin? And if it fails, chop the power, reboot the phone, go again. And it turns out that works. So 
all Apple had to do is change the sequence. They pre-increment before they do the test so that they've recorded the pending failure in case it does fail rather than post-incrementing. They did that. They changed that in 8.1.1. That's all they had to do to foreclose on this really cool hack. But until last November, even with the iPhone 6 and and version 8 and all of its various incantations uh, getting up to up to 8.1.1, you can crack it this way if it was protected by four, for a four-digit pin. Wow. If you were using the more complicated passwords, there was just, you know, there, there was no way it was going to guess. As it was, it could take like 111 hours. So many days to go through 0000 to 9999. But if you're, you know, the law enforcement and you needed to get into somebody's phone and it was protected by a four-digit pin, this would do it until a few months ago. So I just love this as a as a perfect example of, of how clever the hackers can get and how something that looks innocuous can be even further hardened against you know, this sort of attack. But you'd also have to argue that, boy, it's hard to find all of these. It just takes, you know, it takes bad guys poking at the, at, <clears throat> excuse me, at the, the things that are trying to be secure, acknowledging they're going to find some holes and then plugging them and hoping you don't add new holes as you move forward, which of course is always the challenge. Um, in the news, we, t- we discussed last week the really interesting hack with Live.fi where Microsoft had not blocked all of the administrative email account names that, that certificate authorities might use to authenticate ownership of a domain. And as a consequence, an enterprising person in Finland said, hey, uh, what was it, Hostmaster at live.fi he got he set up an that as an alias to his otherwise live.fi email and then he had a certificate issued for himself for live.fi well it turns out there was another instance of that that was a little less reported and that was somebody also did the same thing at live.be which was another one of these microsoft properties but just in a different top level domain but the, the big news of the week, which caused Chrome to immediately reissue uh, and update their CRL set. Remember, I was talking about how, in fact, it was two week. It was it was last week, and I'm looking up at my CRL set monitor here, which was at nine. And you'll remember that I'm entry number five. You know, revoked.grc.com <laughs> is I'm 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 at five, and since then there have been a few other problems, but but live.fi was nine because we they added nine, and I imagine that live.be was ten. And then something even worse was 11 because they're now up to 11 of these explicitly blocked certificates. It seems so few. <laughs> um, well, it, it, you know, it is because, um, because these are the ones which are not yet expired. So there have been horrible problems in the past, but th- those certificates have now expired themselves just by their date. So that's one of the nice things. I mean, it's, you know, 
I remember years ago grumbling about the need to constantly be issuing certificates and how they expired. And it was just a it was a, a money making enterprise for the, for the certificate authorities. I have a much I think a, and I know that our audience does now too a more sophisticated and mature understanding of the fact that, yeah, you know, that's maybe not ideal, but it's the best solution we have. Because if certificates weren't expiring, that list, which you notice so short, could not be that short. Because every certificate that had ever had this problem would have to be on that list. Now, it's only those that haven't otherwise expired themselves. So this is, you know, this is that trade-off that, that we make where we really don't have a perfect system. And the event that occurred, which caused the 11th entry in that table, is another biggie. It turned out, and, I, and we have to thank Google for this. I mean, one of the neatest things about Chrome is that Google has pinned all of the Google certs, which is to say the Chrome browser knows the serial numbers of every legitimate Google certificate, meaning that you can you can forge other people's certs. You cannot forge Google certs and, and look at them with the Chrome browser. The Chrome browser will have a fit just instantly and it immediately, you know, has instrumentation sending alarms back to Cupertino and, and, you know, immediately Google Mountain View, immediately Google knows, (laughs) (laughs) right. Immediately Google knows that, that they, that one of their browsers somewhere in the world has just encountered a fraudulent Google certificate. And that happened again Last week, it's happened several times. It's how we find out about these things so quickly is somebody messes with Chrome and Chrome just it's finicky this way. So what it turns out happened was China's CNNIC, that's the China Internet Network Information Center, which is a large Chinese certificate authority under an agreement with with an Egyptian intermediate certificate authority called MCS Holdings. Uh, CNNIC issued MCS Holdings an intermediate certificate that had signing authority, meaning that 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 certificate had the bits set in it that allowed it to sign other certs. This was an error. Uh, This, well... The, the, okay, so the, the, uh, <laughs> um, the agreement was that MCS Holdings would only issue certificates for their own domains. Instead, they broke their agreement with CNNIC, which is the root certificate authority that all of our browsers trust. I mean, this is like this is the equivalent of the Hong Kong post office. This is, you know, this is CNNIC is a CA, a root certificate authority, all browsers trust. So their self-signed certificate is in all of our OSs and phones. So that... Is that China, Nick? Is that what that is? Yes. All right. Yes. So, 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 so this CNNIC issued a 
an intermediate certificate that itself could be used to sign other certs to this MCS Holdings, this Egyptian Intermediate Certificate Authority, with the promise from MCS Holdings that they would only use it to sign their own domains. Instead, they installed it in a proxy. Whoa. So so what they did was they stuck it in a piece of equipment that was then able to filter all of the traffic moving through it. Now, we've we've we recent we, we've talked about this a lot because of course this is what some of the spyware that we've been talking about recently has been doing, but they didn't have a a certificate that could sign other certs. So what what th- th- that is a certificate that was chained to a root cert that everybody already trusted. That's what's different about this. MCS Holdings had this certificate that could sign other certs, and it was trusted by the, the, the root cert that we all use. Normally, when you want a proxy, like when the spyware is proxying, they have to install th- their public key um, in your browser in order for you to trust what they sign with their private key. But but by installing, and this is the reason MCS Holdings presumably did this, was they put this certificate in a proxy so that, so that everybody downstream of the proxy would trust all of the security and they'd be, they'd be cracking open, basically performing a man-in-the-middle attack, cracking open secure transactions for whatever reason they had. But somebody inside of that network had Chrome. And the, the moment the moment they went to a Google property, the Chrome browser received a fraudulent Google cert from this proxy appliance and raised holy hell wow. and immediately, you know, Expose the fact that something was generating these fraudulent certificates. Google got on it, figured out what was going on, and has blacklisted that cert. Um, Firefox will be updated. Um, I got a, a, a couple updates from Firefox. There was there was a Firefox update. I think we're at like thirty three point. So, let me take a look here. Just see where I am. They said it's going to oh. ship in Firefox thirty seven. Ah, right. So I'm at 36.0.4. Right. Uh, one of those, uh, w- one of those changes was to fix the pwn to own vulnerability. We're going to talk about next. Um, but you're right. In 37, they will they will push out a Firefox that has this intermediate cert uh, untrusted, ad, m- much as Chrome now has, thanks to the CRL set. And the interesting so, thing, the Mozilla Security Blog points out that the CNN Nick. The China CN Nick, the China Nick, uh, said, as you said, that it wasn't permitted by their uh, policies and practices, and have revoked the intermediate certificate. But this is why right. this is an issue because we, as we know, certificate revocation is doesn't basically work. meaningless. Yes. So they have to add it yes. to the list that eleven member list, which includes Steve. Of certificates you should not trust. Firefox does right. the same thing. But that's if certificate revocation worked, this would have been automatic, and it's kind exactly. of annoying. Exactly, and, and and yes, and this is you know this is where I c- kind of went off on my complete 
tirade many months ago when I realized that that Chrome was misrepresenting their own CRL set because they're having to manually manually revoke high highly important certificates by adding it to a special list at the top because their CRL set isn't actually big enough to to really do much good and 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 the the this highlights again the, the the essentially the problem that we talked about last week, which is it is we, we have currently a brittle system. It's brittle because a tiny mistake that any one of the hundreds of certificate authorities that we implicitly trust, a tiny mistake they make requires a scramble. Right. Suddenly, all of the browsers and and other trust. Uh, anchors that exist on the internet have to scramble in order, you know, to deal with the 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 event of a tiny mistake being made. So this, I mean, it's just not stable the way it is. And the good news is there are things on the horizon uh, that are going to probably fix this. Interestingly, so, Mozilla has introduced will introduce with thirty seven a similar list. They call it uh, what is it one CRL, but it's the same idea. Yep. And they yep. acknowledge that the certificate revocation using OCSP doesn't work. So they're going to do a list just like Chrome does a list. So I guess, you know, maybe yep. that kind of confirms this is the best way to do it. Yep. So we fix so, it. So uh, at the CanSec West Security Conference over the weekend, uh, one, I have to say, this guy is gifted. Uh, uh, this is the pwn to own the pwn to own competition or challenge, which is co-sponsored by HP's Zero Day Initiative and Google's um, Code Zero program. I'm sorry, Project Zero program, uh, found a bunch of bugs. Uh, Microsoft Windows was found to have five. IE had four. Firefox had three. Adobe Reader three, Adobe Flash, three, Apple Safari, two, and Chrome, one. Overall, a total of 442500 dollars, four four two five zero zero was paid out to researchers. But um more than half of that was grabbed by one guy. Um, uh, and this is, he, he's a Korean researcher. Um, is it what, uh, pronounced Young Hoon Lee? Your uh, guess is as good as mine on that one. Yeah. Uh, he pulled off, uh, okay. So all, as I just noted, uh, IE Firefox, Safari, and Chrome, all four browsers collapsed under the pressure from these guys. He was responsible for three of the four. Um, and, Against Chrome, he won $110,000, which is the single biggest payout in history. Uh, as you mentioned on MacBreak Weekly, he used more than 200 lines of code. This used Chrome. Oh, 2,000. I'm sorry, 2,000. 2,000. 2,000 lines of code. 2, lines <laughs> of code. Like writing an application. I mean, that's a big well, deal. And, and he, he made reference to 
the um the 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 chrome native technology which i'm going to have to cover on a podcast soon because it's really interesting i i i took a look at it uh recently relative to uh exploit mitigation that they're doing but 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 this is the technology that is that is really sort of frightening that allows you to run native x86 code at full machine speed, no interpretation, like like you know any JavaScript or Java or Flash or anything else has native code in in a special uh, sandbox in the browser. So it was very likely that two thousand lines of this is what he used. So he said using more than two thousand lines of code, Lee took down both the stable and the beta versions of Chrome by exploiting get this there there a buffer overflow race condition in the browser he then used an info leak and the race condition in two windows kernel drivers to get system access so the the standalone chrome bug fetched him $75,000 the privilege escalation bug Got him another twenty five thousand, and then Project Zero. So, so, so that would be a hundred thousand. Then Project Zero independently paid him ten thousand uh, when Chrome was hacked at that event. So, just for Chrome, that the Chrome takedown a hundred and ten thousand. Then in IE eleven, he earned sixty five thousand dollars for exploiting a 64-bit version, this is IE1164, with what's called a time of check to time of use. The acronym is T-O-C-T-O-U, time of check to time of use vulnerability. Who even knew there was such a thing? The vulnerability exploits the time between the, the time a file's property is checked and the time the file is used. This is another one of those little shim sort of things where if you're really good and you really understand this stuff, you can foil the system that designed to be foolproof. Um, and uh, normally this would lead to a, pri- to a privilege escalation. But in this case, uh, the attack enabled him to gain read-write privileges on the browser while another attack he used allowed him to escape the sandbox via a JavaScript injection, uh, which allowed him to evade other IE11 defensive mechanisms. So again, this is you know some serious Aikido of uh, uh, this kind of hacking. And then yeah, and almost all of the Cansec uh, West exploits were cha- what they call chained. That's a chained right. exploit, taking advantage of a flaw, 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 flaw down the road. That's right, why because- two thousand lines of code. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's because that you know one one problem will get you a little bit of a beachhead, but nothing you can immediately exploit. So you have to take that and then leverage that into something else to to get a, a you know a more powerful advantage and then do it again. I mean, it's I, I feel like we're in the land of science fiction now. It's just amazing to me that that this is all true. But then anyway, finally, they're in Safari. He found a use-after-free vulnerability, which exploited an uninitialized stack pointer uh, in Safari Sandbox in order to break out of the sandbox, and that earned him fifty thousand dollars. So he took home two hundred twenty-five grand for nice. uh, 
a few minutes worth of of demonstration. As we noted, and, and as you have said on, on both of those prior podcasts, Leo, you know, these are, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a mixed blessing because this 2,000 lines of code, he didn't sit down and write right there. You know, he had figured out that he was going to be able to crack Chrome. And in fact, uh, in some background research I did, he did this through static code analysis. That is, he sat there looking through code in order to find a way to do this. So, you know, he earned his money. And and um, so I guess I've, I'm glad that these vulnerabilities have been removed. Uh, it certainly does take, you know, this level of skill in, in order to, to find them. They're, they are These vulnerabilities are increasingly difficult to find and exploit. And, of course, that's the good news for all of us. Browsers are getting more secure. Uh, now the key, as I keep mentioning, is for us not to break them by you know, <laughs> adding stuff to them. <laughs> and so we have a Firefox update coming. I, I'm now at 36.0.4, and I was at point three yesterday. So they've been revving it a bunch. I don't wow. know whether this may already have the the uh, uh, provision for that er- erroneous cert or not. Uh, I mean, it's not a huge problem it's it very likely the case that no malicious certificates were minted by this proxy but it is very cool i think that somebody using chrome downstream of the proxy visited google and that just sent chrome into a fit and immediately identified that you know that a, an illegitimate google certificate uh was in use and then we were able to figure that out so this is some cool instrumentation that uh, that Google has been building. No kidding. And uh, I, I I loved Sunday's tweet, Leo. I I just wanted to thank you. Uh, mention that. And I don't remember it. What I happened? <laughs> completely agree with you about VR headsets and pornography. <laughs> have you tried I, it? I watch. No, no, no. But <laughs> and, and I and I and you are right. And I was a little disappointed but that everybody else was just like in shock when you said that, as if, as if they hadn't even thought of the if, idea. Well, I mean, any student of history and technology knows that for whatever reason, adult entertainment is always on the leading edge of this of, oh, of yeah. new technology. The the very I mean, the reason VHS, you know, video cassettes took off initially. You know, the adult entertainment was what people were purchasing. And we're probably, everybody listening to this podcast is old enough to remember that in the early days, the internet was mostly porn. Right. I mean, that's what, it was a huge, you know. May still be, but we just know not to go there. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen any in like forever. But I I mean, it used to be on sitcoms and things. I mean, it was a massive porn database. That's what it was. And people sort of had a sense of anonymity. And so that made them feel safe. And I actually think it's not only not changed, it's gotten, that, that really is probably a huge amount of the internet traffic. And people just... I think everybody just kind of pretends it's not the case and we're just well, ignores if nothing it. else, if nothing else, there is a lot more now. Yes. It used to be that, you know, you, you just there wasn't that much else right. on the Internet. There's a ton of and other now, stuff, too. Everything's on the right. Internet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But porn guys were the were early on. They were, you know, VHS. 
every new technology, credit card, you know, online charges. I'm sure the very first tintype photographs. Yeah. It's like, oh, look at this picture. Oh. But but my point, uh, well, I don't know if I want to belabor it, but my point was having tried it now, uh, uh, somebody uh, VR. who has a uh, Gear VR headset, which is based on Oculus, um, surfed to one of these sites that offered. I didn't. We didn't buy anything. They had trailers, and I looked at the trailers, which are explicit. And the experience is very realistic. It's um, notably more realistic than just watching it on a screen, on a flat screen. And while I haven't really enjoyed the realism of games, you get seasick because you're moving and it's moving in a little different, and it's just tough. Um, and, and regular movies don't lend themselves, I think, so well to the idea of you're in the movie. Certainly nothing that yeah, made you yet. know. I mean, like like um, what was James Cameron big one? The um, Avatar. Avatar. It was like I, it was in three D. It was nice. Yeah, but and, VR. You know, those, the those... idea is that you're not just watching the action on the screen. You can look around, right? So that doesn't. Movie makers are not going to be that interested in letting the viewers' no. attention no. wander to there any part are, of the screen. There are. They're artists. Yeah. They want to tell. They, they want to control your focus. And maybe they'll play with that, but uh, nobody has to date. Well, as it turns out, the uh, I don't want to go into great detail here, but this well, is there, there. Actually, there's no need to. All I want to do it. was just. just <laughs> I, yeah, I want. I, I just listening to Twit. I thought, what's wrong with you guys? Leo is right. It's obvious that that's going to be. A market for virtual reality headsets. It's More obvious than it's, you think, Steve, because it's, it's all... a light years different experience. <laughs> it's like you're there. And that is what people Makes, want yeah. with porn. Not with many other experiences. Gaming, yes, if they can get it to work, great. But well, boy, they've got it, it, it now. It, it's a visceral, emotional, yeah. uh, you know deeply wired into the human psyche thing right and so yeah i anyway, i immediately understood what you were saying and i just wanted to say i that those guys somehow maybe they were just too shy i mean you know we're we're adults i think they were absorbing just, it just, <laughs> just, <laughs> but i'm surprised there ha there's been nothing written about it nobody's talked about it it happened with google gear um very quickly or google glass rather very quickly that there were attempts to use it. That's yeah, not the same thing. That's, a, that's looking at a window here. over your eyebrow. Yeah. No. Imagine an immersive adult experience that a lot of people would be very interested in. And um, it, it is not like it, it is it almost is is really the, convincing. It's that's the, the thing really? this was made for practically. And why nobody's written about this is beyond me because it. The, uh, I, I feel like this will be a very big part. Of what makes VR I think it's happen. just. I think it's just too soon. It's, it's just yeah. you know we're you know they're still showing 3D cubes. It's like oh look at that 3D cube throw floating in space. It's like well yeah. no. Okay. I remember going yeah. to SIGGRAPH 15 years ago, 1991 or two, and they had you you could fly on a pterodactyl. Some of you may remember this. It was very famous VR demonstration. Required a lot of hardware. Oh and my you're goodness. Flying. And yeah. as you're flying, you can look around. That's cool. But if you were flying with a naked woman, <laughs> I'm, I don't want to go anymore, but I'm just saying. No need. No need. I just, I, I, you know, I, it, it was just my reaction to them not understanding how obvious. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just if, if nothing else, the history, it's, you know, for whatever reason, that 
that has always been a major application yeah. of leading edge technology. And you and, ain't seen nothing I've, yet. That's all I'm saying. It's just beginning. And I, the, the other thing I wanted to mention about Sunday show was it was interesting to listen to Ed Bott defend <laughs> his position on privacy. I give him that opportunity that, every time. <laughs> yeah, and and it's I mean I, I and and you and I sort of feel similarly, but but that's the sort of that's the feeling that I got when I came out of of that of, of the Snowden movie, uh, Citizen Four, was a, a deeper sense of respect for the rights of people who wanted privacy for its own sake. I really think that that's where Ed is. He's like he wants it for its own sake. He he feels like he's He's always had control. He doesn't want to lose that control. And, uh, you know, it's his right. And I think... Of course you know, it is. Nobody denies that. Right. Right. My And the only point I continue to make is that a lot of the services you use today, like Google and Facebook, are paid for by that trade of data for utility. And yeah. it, it to me, it violates... It's a... It's a, it's a an ethical violation, and I, by the way, I, I think people think that I'm talking about Twit. I'm not. We don't. We have kind of a different model anyway. But if I get, I guess it'd be the same thing. If you'd never listened to the ads on on our shows, um, but loved the shows and listened to the shows every time, that's the same kind of ethical um, uh, violation. You're saying I'll consume the content, but I will not support the way you pay for it. And that's, you know, that's, it's fine if you don't want to participate, but to don't, but don't, don't well, use Google and Facebook and say, but I don't want to see the ads. Cause although Ed, Ed, Ed does, Ed did keep reminding you that it's the tracking that he yeah. objects to. Yeah. And not, you don't, not, not the ads, but, but, but cause I mean, he really understands the, the incredible amount of data that is aggregated yeah. Yeah, about us. And so yeah. that's the thing that, that, that he objects. And when to. you just, watch a show, we don't in any way track whether you saw the no. ad or not. We can't, we wish we could, but we can't, we are, there's no way of us when you get a show knowing anything about you, we don't. So, uh, even when you watch live, I mean, there are a few trackers on our site that do for analytics because, you know, somebody pointed out, well, you got a Facebook like button on your site, which I think we do somewhere. That's a tracker. Of course, Facebook then is getting a, a bit of data about you, mostly just your IP address and maybe your browser, um, whatever they can deduce from the browser. Maybe they're well, sending they a super know, cookie. They, they know. know where you are. Yeah, because yeah. – um, Well, your IP address. The, yeah. Well, no, the, the, they know you're at Twit because your HTTP referrer header will say that there's a like button on right. twit.tv. So, so, you know, yeah. they get it's, that. It's basically you know? giving Facebook a window into our, whoever visits our site. Um, yeah, the, you know, and I should take those. Linked. I'll take those buttons off. We won't have them on the news site. Um, we will have analytics because we need to know how many people visit our site. Not for effort necessarily for advertising reasons, although that's part of it. But we want to know that. Yeah, you know. Um, and so, you know, if you're using an ad blocker, you're basically saying, "Yeah, I'm going to steal your stuff." To me, but I understand the other issues. The privacy issue is absolutely right on. Just don't visit sites. <laughs> you can listen to our show. That's safe. Yeah. So um, just a surely short, nice little note from a listener of ours, uh, Phil Horowitz, who's in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He said, hello, Stephen Leo. My simple everyday spin story. 
<laughs> I was helping a friend who had a Windows 8 computer that hung at startup. He didn't know what to do. So we brought the computer over and I ran Spinrite. As I have seen before, there were no evident errors that were corrected. But nevertheless, after Spinrite completed, the PC started. Great. Love security now. Haven't missed a show. Phil Horowitz. So, um, and I did want to take this opportunity just to say back to the listeners of this podcast on the occasion of our 500th podcast. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you because um, the, the support that I feel from our listeners, I mean, how many times have I read testimonials or tweets from people who have said, uh, I know the only thing you sell is Spinrite. Um, I bought a copy even though I didn't need it to support you and the podcast. And I, I now know that when a drive crashes that I'd probably be able to recover it and, and save it. And, and that means a lot. I mean, it's one thing for people to say, hey, you know, love the podcast. But, you know, when people vote with their with their dollars, uh, that's significant. And, and for me, as you know, Leo, you're always mentioning that Springrite, uh, as I just said, is the only thing that I sell. Um, the podcast, this podcast, has been one of the best things I've ever done uh, for helping to get the word out about Spinrite. Prior to that, the reason I was doing the InfoWorld column back in those early days was that I was able to trade an ad insertion with InfoWorld for my column. Uh, they'd let me let the world know about Spinrite. I'd put a, a column worth of content uh, in their in InfoWorld uh, Info every week. And so, you know, that worked for me. And, you know, for me, this is the same sort of thing. I love doing the podcast, um, but my ability to, to tell people about Spinrite for the last 10 years uh, of the podcast has allowed the word to spread. Uh, it's helped innumerable people who wouldn't have known about Spinrite and would have lost data that they considered vital and important. Uh, and as I often say, it's paid all the bills. It allows me to have Sue and Greg to do the the back end bookkeeping and tech support, and gives me the freedom to to push forward on other things. So anyway, I you know I, I'm I hear thanks from our listeners all the time for the podcast, uh, which really means a lot to me. But I want to really turn that around and say thank you to our listeners. Uh, for making this possible for me because you, your support and you guys all do that. Thank you. We do. We agree. Awesome people. Keeping up the, uh, keeping up the content flowing. So speaking of content, yes. Windows Secure Boot. Um, okay. So um, this will sound familiar because it's very much the same story that any system booting in an in a hostile environment would have. The reason it'll sound familiar is it's the Apple iPhone story. When we did the the series, I think it was three podcasts on on the 
I think it was with iOS 7, all of the things that Apple did in order to really lock down, I mean, seriously secure iOS. Um, they're booting that phone in a super hostile environment. Bad guys desperately want to get in. And the, the phone is sitting there all by itself, no one to defend it. It has to defend itself. So, so there's a, a now sort of a well-understood approach to this. And it, it, it involves a, a so-called trust anchor that is some absolute, some single point of trust and the the evolution of what the device does, whether it's a phone, a desktop, a laptop, or whatever, all sort of flows from that, that first point of trust. So the original PC had the BIOS, you know, the, the, a, an acronym everyone's familiar with, Basic I.O. System, B-I-O-S. And it was just about as simple as it could be. I, I meant to, to have a copy of it uh, next to me. I, I have the original uh, IBM XT technical reference manual, which is this really nice sort of cloth-bound three little sort of mini three-ring binder. And just innocently printed at the back of this technical reference is the listing of the BIOS. And it was really useful for me. It allowed me to create my first product for the PC, which was this crazy thing called Flickr Free, where I rewrote the BIOS handler for the display screen uh, in order to remove the scrolling flicker that the, the CGA, the color graphics adapter card had, and also sped it up by hundreds of times. It was just amazing what a difference uh, just rewriting a chunk of the BIOS could have. And similarly, in the early days of SpinWrite, I, I needed to understand what was in the BIOS in the PC XT in order to in order to interact with it, you know, because I was essentially taking the place of DOS. Well, the idea with the original BIOS was very simple. The, the concept was the BIOS is going to be a layer between the hardware and the operating system so that there, there would be hardware on the motherboard. You'd have serial ports, a parallel port, uh, graphics display, or, or at least a text display, keyboard, uh, <laughs> in the early days, cassette input and output, um, and uh, floppy drives, and maybe a hard drive. That's that was pretty much it. That was the I.O. of the PC. And, and rather than expecting any software that ran on that PC to, to, to talk to the physical hardware, what IBM provided was an, an interface layer, um, formerly called a hardware abstraction layer, an HAL. The idea being that no matter what type of disk controller you might plug in, whether it was RLL or SCSI later on, or MFM, or whatever, you could always talk to different makes and models of hard disk controller through the BIOS, interrupt 13, 
um, of the BIOS in order just to say, read and write these sectors, move the head, uh, format the track, and so forth. There were commands you could give. Similarly, Interrupt 10 was the, the, the video interface. And so you were able to say, you know, clear the screen, print this line of text, and so forth. Well, the problem was, at, as the industry evolved, uh, people wanted to pierce that layer because they wanted additional function. Um, I, I remember, well, for example, I replaced the video portion of the BIOS with a little TSR, a Terminate and Stay Resident Program, flicker-free, in order to in- dramatically enhance the performance of the screen on that system. But famously, there were things that people started to want to do that you could not do through the BIOS. Uh, uh, I want to say VisiCalc. Was VisiCalc on the PC or oh, yeah. was it Lotus? Well, VisiCalc was, it, was Visi- and then Lotus. VisiCalc started on Apple, of course. Yeah. Right, right. And so in, 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 in Lotus, I remember, um, they, were, they were programming the, the, the video RAM directly because they just couldn't afford the overhead of, of the BIOS. The BIOS could have allowed them to do it, but the, but the things they wanted to do, scrolling quickly, horizontally and vertically, moving, you know, like highlight bars around the screen, it just couldn't do that. So they had to bypass the BIOS and go direct. So, so many older systems are still BIOS-based. The BIOS has, has, has lived for decades, um, b- mostly because you could bypass it. You, you, you would use the BIOS to, to essentially power the system up. It would initialize the hardware. It would sort of settle things down. Then it would look through a list of, of possible boot devices, um, checking them in sequence for a sector that said it had access to a bootable, bootable partition, and it would go and see if it could boot the partition. If so, it would run that code, and off you'd go. The, the operating system then, rather than using the BIOS, for example, you know, DOS actually did use the BIOS, but, but the first thing Windows did was say, okay, fine, get out of the way. And Windows brought its own drivers essentially to talk directly to the hardware. So, so, this, so this was the uh, situation up until probably like what the, the mid-1990s or so when, when the BIOS began to show its age. Um, systems were evolving. We were beginning to want much more capability. Uh, people wanted to be able to boot their system over the network remotely. They, um, they wanted, uh, you know, corporate IT wanted to be able to do an inventory of what was plugged into the motherboard without even talking to the operating system. Actually have the motherboard be smart enough. Motherboards started to want to be able to monitor the voltages of their power supplies and the current. They had multiple fans, and so they wanted to to control temperature in various areas. They had, you know, fancy RAID arrays that that they needed to support. Essentially, the, the, the very modest platform that the PC XT originally was that the BIOS was able to service, that platform just exploded. So we needed something new. And so the so-called EFI um, 
then became the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI, which is now the state of the art in firmware. Some people say the UEFI BIOS, although technically that's not right uh, because the BIOS is the BIOS and UEFI is a different firmware than the BIOS firmware. Um, But today's UEFI offers a vast array of services. There's um, there's, uh, essentially almost an, an operating system within the motherboard to manage the, the, the modern complexity of all the peripherals. Uh, there's uh, an ACPI, which is the, uh, the, the power control that allows uh, various uh, power down states. And all of that has to be communicated and coordinated with the hardware so that the motherboard is, is like understands how to, how to do that to all of its hardware. So you, you still need a sort of a, a central point of responsibility. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, there's, you know, fans and voltage and current monitoring, remote network booting, just all the chassis management and everything. So, so the UEFI is a, has, has just exploded in size. It's, it's really left the original BIOS way behind. So it got to the point where it was time to talk about security. And the UEFI has gone through a number of versions. It was at 2.2 that we first really got what was known as secure boot. And, and in the same way that the iPhone depends upon its hardware in order to provide absolute security, the secure boot is the same way. There is a, there is a platform key, abbreviated PK, which the manufacturer of the device, we'll, we'll use the term motherboard just for short, but it could be also, you know, the, the, the main board of the laptop or, or whatever. There is, a, there is a platform key which the manufacturer um, is able to use to sign the firmware, which first wakes up when, when power is applied to the device. So essentially, everything we have learned about the way certificates and public keys and all of the PKI, the public key infrastructure works, that is all there in the UEFI system, in the UEFI uh, system firmware. Um, the, the manufacturer has the private key that it probably doesn't let go of. There are some instances where really large purchasers may acquire the, the private key for their systems if, if they want absolute control over the firmware of, of the systems that they're purchasing and, and managing, although it's probably not necessary because of the hierarchical nature, sort of in, in, in the same way that you can get a certificate to secure your server. You don't need to be a certificate authority yourself. So, uh, so essentially, 
in 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 the if we sort of reuse the jargon of the web, the manufacturer of the motherboard, this UEFI motherboard, is the certificate authority. It is the C, the the trusted CA for their device because burned into the ROM of that board, unmodifiable, is a public key which is used to verify the signature of the of the of the 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 first startup boot firmware that wakes up when the system receives power so the, the, at at a hardware level before anything happens the this the signature the digital signature and in in you know in um in the sense of a, an an SHA256 Mac signature is taken of the very first firmware to start and verified against this platform key. And of course, so what that means is that only signed firmware will be booted by that board. If anything changes, if a byte changes in that firmware or someone, anyone tries to replace the firmware um, and in fact, there are also rollback provisions so that it's uh, use, using timestamps so that it is not possible to put an earlier version of firmware on top of a later version. So, so the the system has been designed um, in the in very much the same way the iPhone was, with a security framework that is that that starts with with absolute hardware support and then works to never lose that. There are there are three databases that are contained in non-volatile RAM or ROM. It doesn't really matter. It, 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 is, it, it won't lose its, its memory when, it, when it's powered off, but it can be rewritten. Thus, these are databases. Um, there's something called the KEK, the Key Exchange Key Database, which contains essentially signatures... Uh, the spec refers to them as trust anchors, but they're just cryptographic signatures of entities that are allowed to modify the other two databases. There's an allowed signatures database and a forbidden database. And either of those databases can contain either certificates that sign other firmware or hashes, that is, uh, you know, digests, fingerprints of other firmware. So, so, so what we have is, is, is an architecture where all of the, all of the firmware modules, that is, for example, uh, in, in UEFI, you still have things like option ROMs to extend the, the, the knowledge that the base firmware has of specific peripherals. So a, um, an, a for example, a, uh, uh, network hardware will have its own option ROM with firmware UEFI compatible firmware in it. In order for that option ROM to be initialized at boot, which has to happen in order to for it to initialize the network hardware, that option ROM has to either be well. First of all, it has to be signed, and it it it's the signer of that has to have their their certificate in the allowed signatures database and 
not have that, that certificate in the forbidden database or if there, if there isn't a certificate for the firmware, then the, the cryptographic hash of that firmware has to be in the allowed signatures database. So you have an explicit whitelist, blacklist system for every component of UEFI firmware, all the various pieces of, of, of additional uh, firmware extension that exists on the motherboard are individually hashed and in some cases signed uh, in, in order to allow that firmware to uh, and, 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 I, and I should m- mention that that the firmware is enumerated when the when the system powers up and then that that initially signature protected uh, initial boot code goes out and checks the signatures of all of the other pieces of firmware. As it's doing this, it's also leaving an audit trail. There's another component of this, which is it's, it's oddly named. It's called measured boot. So we have secure boot, which is sort of the, 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 the implementation side of making sure that nothing that is known bad or unknown is ever allowed to run. And then the measured boot is an auditing system, an auditing function, which is going on throughout this entire process in the background, which uses the trusted platform module as its audit store because, because in a compromised system, you, you, the, the compromising software could alter the audit trail. You know, we often hear, for example, how, how bad guys get into the system and then erase the logs of them getting in in order to cover their tracks. So, so you, you want to prevent something like that from happening. So, so this measured boot is also running step-by-step step through the entire boot process, creating a, a, essentially an audit trail of everything that is run. So at some point after all of the UEFI firmware has been enumerated, all of the uh, all of the separate pieces of it have had their signatures checked. Certificates have either been found for them, or they are they are, they are explicitly whitelisted in the allowed signatures database. Finally, then the system will will enumerate uh, boot candidates for for you know like mass storage boot candidates and begin to turn this boot system over to the operating system that wants to run on top of all of this so that's where of course windows comes along um windows is able to to have uh as, as well for, well um first of all as we know 64 bit uh kernel drivers have to be digitally signed so the the um, the UEFI firmware is able to reach up into the Windows bootloader, which is a an EFI image. Also, uh, EFI images are um, Microsoft format uh, portable executable files, um, and that's just a a, 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 a standard for UEFI. Um, so UEFI is able to reach up, verify in the same way that it, that. It verifies its own firmware. It's able to verify the the first boot modules of the operating system also. 
to make sure that that they are explicitly whitelisted and that they have not been changed. Then Windows introduces um, the 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 operating system itself has this notion of boot drivers, which are which are kernel drivers flagged for early loading. It's just a, a particular property that that the driver has in its header, which says. I need to be loaded early in the process. There's a special one of those for that supports Windows Secured Boot, uh, which is called ELAM, E-L-A-M, which is um, the early launch anti-malware. So, and and Microsoft uses the acronym AM for anti-malware throughout their 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 spec of this. So the idea is that that the EFI the UEFI firmware verifies the signature on these drivers. Um, the drivers are signed by Microsoft Authenticode. So, and that technology is also available to the UEFI firmware. It's able to verify Microsoft Authenticode signatures um, in order to, to know that it's able to trust these pieces. This ELAM, the early launch anti-malware, gets in inserts itself into the, the the boot process and then essentially takes over responsibility. That's the handoff between the UEFI and, and the Microsoft boot process where Microsoft is now able to know that, that up to the point that it has received control, only signed and trusted modules from from the first moment power started to flow through the motherboard to now um, have been able to operate. Um, Microsoft um, my, Microsoft's own boot system then pulls in the balance of the pieces of Windows, verifying every piece of them, and also doing anti-malware checking against various types of dictionaries that it, it, it has available as this progresses. Um, and uh, th- the final thing it does is it looks in the trusted platform module for this measured boot audit, and it has the ability to send that out of the machine to a remote server where that audit is verified. It understands that if something has gone wrong, it can't be trusted to audit itself. But it, but the the TPM is able to produce its own signed audit trail, which cannot be altered. So that can be sent out to a third party um, in order to verify the security of the boot. And so, for example, there there's another term, trusted boot, which technically is the is the is the combination of a secure boot and an audited boot, or you know, which is this measured boot technology. Together, they allow Windows to get itself up and going in in a trusted state. And for example, it might be in a in a large enterprise that that computer is not allowed onto the network until that measured boot, that is the audit, has been verified by some other machine on the network, uh, confirmed that this system is up in full trusted mode. Every every piece of it that has run so far is, is trusted. There's no malware present. And then 
the machine is given permission to get onto the corporate network. So, so essentially, what we've got is a uh, rather straightforward, although it is really complex. the The specification uh, I was looking at that it's um, at now at two point four errata level E. I think it is a three thousand page. It was. 2,998-page specification. I mean, it's just unbelievably complicated. But it's because you've got this, you know, it's it's everybody got their features in. And the fact is, I mean, UEFI is like a world unto itself. It has a whole operating system. There's a command language. You can issue commands. You can get consoles. I mean, just it's amazingly sophisticated basically all we normally see is you know we turn the computer on and up boots our operating system all of this stuff goes on hidden in the background so so you can now you can understand i mean un- understanding what this is we can imagine what it means if we could not turn it off because if you own a computer and there is no way to turn this off, to turn off secure boot, then you have an appliance. You can't, um, it, you can't change the operating system. You can't um, mess around with the computer at all. It is, it is I mean, you can, you can do things that it allows you to do, but nothing that it doesn't. Because from the first moment this thing receives power, Everything has to be signed and trusted. Now, this is why, um, because this was sort of a controversial move, why the Windows 8 logo requirements, as I mentioned before, explicitly said that secure boot must be enabled when a new machine is shipped. But it must be possible for the user to manually disable. I, I, sh- I should also mention that um, there is a, a post-boot programmatic interface between the operating system and the UEFI. That is to say, UEFI exposes a, a large array of services for managing all of these trust databases, which Windows, for example, knows how to talk to. So... And that's necessary. For example, when we're updating kernel drivers, that's um, uh, they're probably going to all be signed by Microsoft certificate, so they would be trusted anyway. But you you might have a, a for example a third party driver which Microsoft needs to bless, um, and for example put its signature into the the trusted UEFI database when it when microsoft installs that driver into windows so or or at least microsoft wants to verify that this driver that it it has installed into itself to be booted will be trusted by uefi at boot time so that uefi will allow that driver to load so there has to be a post boot interaction between the operating system and basically the crossing guard, you know, the, 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 the guard of the bridge, which is, is sitting there deciding who gets to run or not. So the controversy um, is that whereas with Windows 8, Microsoft said systems must be allowed 
to allow the user to turn that off. And that and that's the key. No, you you cannot programmatically turn it off. There there has to be no way for malware to turn it off because that's what you know programmatic means is that a m malware could flip that switch then cause the system to get rebooted and then gain a, an early foothold basically what we're doing is presenting we're preventing any kind of of firmware hack or or boot kit or root kit style exploit which is is it has always been the achilles heel you know, um, we've we've talked about how the operating system can't be responsible for what happens before it gets in control. It can do the best job it can to prevent anything bad from happening once it's in control, but before it's in control, it's not there. So if something is able to modify it before it runs, then it's already corrupted by the time it becomes aware and, and is able to operate. So th this whole system is about is about preventing um, messing with the firmware and messing with the system up uh, the operating system as it loads up to the point where it's then able to do the best job it can of assuming responsibility uh, for anything that happens subsequent to that and and the the, the unknown is how the systems are going to look the windows 10 logo certified machines where Microsoft has specifically said OEMs can choose whether to allow users to disable secure boot or not. If, if that option does not exist in the BIOS, then, then essentially you are you, you got Microsoft Windows installed. That's it. <laughs> and that's it, baby. But I you think there's upgrade. a I think the, the, it's nice that you have the choice, so you don't have to buy that. You should find out if it, if it, if it's if the OEM right. is doing that. It right. is completely appropriate that people should be able to buy a machine that is locked down. You know, I think about the Chromebook Pixel, which is Google's yes. thing. Now they're not using UEFI; they're using uh, Core Boot, which is an open source. Yep, yep. And actually, someday I'd love to hear what you think of that compared to UEFI. But in the Chromebook, they have a very, I think, a nice solution. You can disable it. You have to reboot into developer mode. It puts a big thing up that says this, you know, you're now going to be running, able to run unsigned software. Good. But if you want to do that, you know, but if you want to back out, press the space bar. So for most unsophisticated users, it will always be, and they have a TPM module in there. It is secure. It's signed. They've made it a very, I think, I'm not an expert and I'd love to no, get your opinion on I, that, but a I, very secure I, platform. What you described in terms of the user experience, yeah. I think is exactly right. You, you, I would opt for, I mean, absolutely have this thing be secure. But something feels, I don't know, a little creepy. You bought the hardware. You should be able yes. to modify it. That's what it is. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, I, you know, I can't do anything else with this. It's like, right. you know, it's like, eh. I mean, it does turn it into a big phone. Essentially, that I can't you right. know do anything right. with. It's like you know we see the, the need the, for it. The, we the, talk about it every day on the show. Yes, yes, and and for a lot of people, for a lot of people, I, I love the idea that we've got this level of security. 
um, most people can't even get into the BIOS. They don't know where it right, is. They, right. I mean, I have a hard time. Is, is it delete or is it yeah, F2? They change or like, it, don't they? It, it's difficult to get in. So, so it's already hard enough. And if, if they simply say, you almost certainly never want to turn this off. I mean, put up a flashing red screen and say, you know, you know, if you turn this off, we're no longer responsible. We're going to find out you did and you no longer get support. It's like you're on your own. I, I think that's the way to do it. But it'll be interesting to see. Now, I'm wondering politically what's going on. You think this is OEMs asking Microsoft, please don't require us to allow the end user to disable secure boot because some of our customers have on Windows 8 and they've gotten themselves in trouble. We really don't want to have to do that. Or is it Microsoft saying, eh, Linux, eh, don't think you need Linux. I'm pretty sure it's Microsoft. You, I think you nailed it at the beginning where you say Microsoft eases Creeps. into these things. Yes. And they kind of telegraphed this. And you may remember when Windows 8 came out, there were a lot of Linux enthusiasts saying, oh, my God, this is terrible. They found out you the could dis yeah you could disable UEFI. You can put Linux on these machines, but that I believe was Microsoft announcing to the world, "Hey, we're going in this direction." And I I don't think it's I don't disagree with it, um, be, because as long as some OEMs offer machines that you could put Linux on, but well, the problem any, is somebody any system or anything where else you're going right. to any system where you're going to install the operating system right it's going to be UEFI today. And it'll have that option. Right. And, and, it has and, to be. And then, right. And if you install Windows 10, it'll, I'm sure Windows will say, hey, turn on secure boot. Everything's set. Right. The, the databases are established. All the trust anchors are in place. Turn on secure boot and you, and you get to have your system locked down. You don't have to worry about root kits and boot kits and, and firmware. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And as we live in this world of increasing threat, I think the, yeah. mass, the mass of the market is very much interested in that as a solution and is never going to install some other operating system. They're never, nope. They didn't install Windows nope. in the first place. Nope. Just give us a choice for yeah. in those, but for in us, those situations. Yeah. Yes. And that's, I have to say, sense. one of the things I really like about um, the Chromebook Pixel, you can install Linux on it. Um, nice. And but you have to go put it in this insecure boot yep. mode, and they're very clear about what you're doing. And if you're smart enough to do it, you know the commands, then do it. Um, now, it's, it's funny. It's, I run it, and I for a while I put Crouton on it in Linux, and, and you know I don't need that. I, and it's just messing it up. I'm just I want to I want to know <laughs> that this is it's called Crouton because it's a Chirut. It's a chir, it, it's a uh, ch root right, right. script. It turns on a ch root virtual machine, and then you put right. Linux in it. <laughs> It's a it's like very elegant actually. It's a clever yeah. hack. Elegant may not be the right word. It's a clever hack, but um, I like the idea that when I'm using the Pixel, I know exactly what it does. It's absolutely secure. I now, just don't have to think about it. It's it's worth noting also that even though this would give Richard Stallman oh, a seizure, a seizure, he'd hate it in every uh, form. Oh my lord! Um, it is possible to to do certificated drivers with linux right so so it, it is often possible to to still be in a non windows os and use secure boot uh you just have to go through the the extra effort of of getting stuff signed and certificates installed but uh entirely possible 
And by the way, I'm told in the chat room, and I believe this is true, that Stallman does endorse Chrome, Chrome Boot because that is an open source uh, free SF, oh. FSF uh, program. Um, what about Spinrite? If I have a – the way I use Spinrite right now, I boot to a new operating system. Correct. FreeDOS. Correct. What are you going to yeah, do about so, that? Um, so uh, if it turns out that we, that we do we – we end up in a world – where we're in secure boot, then I'll just do a version of Spinrite as a kernel driver because that's something I've always been I've always been thinking about, <clears throat> right. and that that would allow it to run because I have an authentic code. You know, all all of my software is signed by Microsoft authentic code. I, it's all you know Gibson Research Corporation, and we're trusted, and so I'm able to do kernel drivers. Uh, and a kernel driver has all the capability that I would need. So, you know, it may be that that'll end up being an, another piece of Spinrite that comes comes along uh, if it turns out that there are people who need Spinrite to run in a secure boot environment. Yeah. It does mean that somebody's saying in the chat room, and I think this is true, used hardware has reduced value. It, you know, remember this one of the solutions to running an old XP machine was uh, put Linux on it. Well, that won't be an option on old Windows 10 machines in many cases. Uh, right, well, it makes and, them more and, disposable, and, really. And and relative to um, Spinrite, remember that the the story I just read, Phil Horowitz's uh, friend, uh, had a Windows 8 computer that was hanging at startup. If that was a Windows 8 computer, yeah, it probably had secure boot. He turned that off, and then he booted Spinrite, and it worked just fine. Uh, I presume the system recovery boots would still work. Oh yeah! In fact, there's a there there's some fancy stuff Microsoft does. If it, I mean, it has all this sort of this multi-level fallback stuff where if it gets to the point that it thinks it's okay, and it looks back at that measured boot audit and sees something fishy, it's able to immediately abort its own boot and fall back to recovery mode in order to like restore drivers and and things. Mm -hmm. So there's. All of this, you know, magic, <laughs> magic, scary stuff going on that, you know, that we hope works right. Although, you know, it seems like sometimes that stuff has a problem, too. It's only a matter of time before somebody figures out something. Yeah. So essentially, we've 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 seen the evolution of our hardware platforms um, along the same line that we followed Apple with the iPhone, where in order to. In order to put up the the level of 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 resistance to hacking that we really have to have in this day and age, uh, the system has no choice but to essentially whitelist every component that it's going to load. And if you're going to whitelist every component, then then you're going to be rigid against non-whitelisted components or operating systems. It's, I love this show. You learn <laughs> so much from this show. If you are, enjoy it, I do hope you will listen each and every week. Subscribe. That's the best thing to do. And uh, you could do that at uh, twit.tv slash SN 
or using your podcatcher uh, or iTunes or whatever you use to listen. Almost all of them will have a subscribe option. Uh, you can also uh, listen through our uh, great third-party apps. We have wonderful developers on iOS, Android, Windows Phone, Roku. Uh, I, I bet you there's BlackBerry. There's certainly Windows and Mac that you can always do it that way, too. But uh, please make sure you tune in every Wednesday about 1.30 Pacific Daylight Time. I say that because I think there's still a, some error in our calendar on the website, and I want you to understand we've moved to daylight time. In uh, We've in, also moved to Tuesday, so... Did I say I Wednesday? <laughs> One of these days. It's only been six months. Tuesday, thank you. Um, and so uh, that is uh, 1.30 Pacific Daylight Time, 4.30 Eastern Daylight Time. If you're on UTC, that's 20.30, or you can make the calculations yourself. Most other countries are going to summertime soon, I think, so this won't be as much of an issue. There's just this little interregnum that it's a problem. Uh, you can get Steve's got 16 kilobit versions of uh, the audio at his site, as well as full tan text transcripts that are great. That's grc.com. You'll also find Spin right there, world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility, plus lots of other freebies. Steve's giving stuff away all the time. You heard? Did you hear our conversation? Uh, was yes. it on Twit about about uh, Microsoft's new? Uh, passport uh, and hello, I, and I and I appreciated your little mention of squirrel. You said, "Well, you know, Steve's got this squirrel thing he's working on, and uh, we'll see." Yeah, we'll see. Microsoft supporting Fido. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. There's a lot of problems with Fido. For example, uh, Fido doesn't have any uh, identity management at all. That oh. is to say, if so, if so, if your identity escapes from you with fido uh there's nothing there, there's no mechanism in fido for remediating it for for recovering it for pulling it back uh all of that is built into squirrel so uh this is why uh you know brad hill who was one of the chief architects of fido said he thought squirrel was the best thought out system that he had seen so but again, you're right. It, it doesn't have everybody behind it, um, but it does have a lot of small guys behind it. A lot. Of, I, I'm getting people getting email from people saying we want to support it on our website. We we want to use it here or there. Uh, all the various platforms are going to be supported. We'll have Squirrel clients available, and we'll just see. It it might very well live side by side. I, I would have no problem with that at all. Yeah, and, and for one thing, Fido is all based on hardware. I mean, for example, right. um, the you, you guys were talking about, and I really like the idea that you need this 3D vision in order that, that that a photograph won't fool your face recognition in Windows. It actually needs to be a, a 3D representation taken from multiple angles at the same time to know that you're not uh, putting a flat picture up in front of it in order to cause someone to be able to log in. So, you know, all of the biometric stuff is part of the FIDO spec. And, and one of the advantages is that Squirrel doesn't require any hardware. You're able to have a software-only client, which is absolutely secure. So it's also free. And you can add it to existing systems. For example, none of the hardware right now that, that, that Windows 10 uh, will run on is is currently available you don't have 3d cameras unless you add that so anyway we'll, we'll see i'm you know i'm gonna get it done i'll get back to working on spinrite 6.1 and we'll we'll uh give squirrel a good launch and and see how it takes off find out more about squirrel at his website uh questions next week you think yep let's do a q a grc.com slash feedback 
don't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna suspect Steve's gonna say this, but I'll. You correct me if I'm wrong. Don't put birthday greetings there. Yeah, there's no need. I, <laughs> we all know that I. We all know that I'm getting old. I don't. However, I just. I think that that you probably would not like hundreds of those. Is there somewhere? Should people tweet you if they want to say happy birthday? Uh, absolutely. That right. would be very nice. It's a big yeah. six zero for Steve Gibson <laughs> at sggrc grc.com slash feedback if you've got questions for next week. Yeah, uh, and you know, I could see us go into a thousand episodes because you know this this I'm last ten years have been, it, it. it's it's been good, Leo. I don't know about ten. I don't know about yeah. I can give you about ten more too. I'm feeling we'll both good. be we'll both be almost seventy. <laughs> It'll be. I, I do think that I do think that Pornell is probably you know on his last legs. He was a. Uh, he's in his eighties, late eighties. Yeah, yeah. Is, is he really? Well, I don't know exactly how old he is. He's, but he's got so much wisdom. I love. love I love Jerry's wisdom. Love Jerry, but boy, he he's he's been battling. Poor guy. Yeah, but you know what? He's doing fine. He got back from the stroke. He was on Twit a couple of weeks ago and was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I, the mind continues. It's the body that falters. <laughs> right. If you're lucky. Or lucky. <laughs> I don't know. GRC.com. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week right here on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.